0: Chapter sixteen of Inside the Lines by Earl Biggers and Robert Ritchie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain The Pendulum of Fate The next day, Thursday, was one of hectic excitement for Gibraltar. Focus on the concentrated attention of town and rock was the battle fleet clogging all the inner harbour with its great grey hulks. Super dreadnoughts, like the standing walls of a submerged Atlantis, lay close to the quays, barges lashed alongside the folded booms of their torpedo nets. Behind them, battle cruisers and scouts formed a protecting cordon. Far out across the entrance to the harbor, the darting black shapes of destroyers on constant guard were shuttles trailing their threads of smoke through the blue web of sea and sky. Between fleet and shore, snorting cockle-shells of launches established lanes of communication. Khaki of the rock's defenders and blue of the fleet's officers met, passed and repassed. In wardroom and club lounge glasses were touched in pledges to the United Service. The high command of the Mediterranean fleet paid his official visit to the Governor of Gibraltar and the governor, in turn, was received with honors upon the quarter-deck of the flagship. But under the superficial courtesies of fanfare and present arms the stern business of coaling fleet progressed at high tension. It was necessary that all of the fighting machines have their bunkers filled by noon of the following day. Every minute that the channel up under the murky North Sea fogs lay without full strength of her fleet protection was added danger for England. That morning Captain Woodhouse went on duty in the signal tower. Major Bishop, his superior, had summoned him to his office immediately after breakfast, and assigned him to his tasks there. Sufficient proof, Woodhouse assured himself with elation, that he had come through the fire in General Crandall's library, tested and found genuine. Through this pretext and that, he had been kept off duty the day before, denied access to the slender stone tower high up on the rock's crest, which was the motor centre of Gibraltar's ganglia of defence. The small office in which Woodhouse was installed was situated at the very top of the tower, a room glassed on four sides like the lantern room of a lighthouse, and provided with telescope, a telephone switchboard, range-finders, and all the complicated machinery of gunfire control. On one side were trestle boards supporting charts of the ranges, figured areas representing every square yard of water from the nearer harbour below out to the farthest reaching distance of the monster disappearing guns. A second graphic sheet showed the harbour and anchorages and the entrance to the straits. This map was thickly spotted with little red numbered dots, the mines sown like a turnip-field with these deadly capsules of destruction, were all the waters thereabouts. Their delicate tendrils led under water and through conduits in the rock, up to this slender spire called the signal tower. As he climbed the winding stairway to his newly assigned post, Woodhouse had seen painted on a small wooden door, just below the room he was to occupy, the single white letter D. Room D, where the switches were, where a single sweep of the hand could loose all the hidden death out there in the crowded harbour, it lay directly below his feet. Captain Woodhouse's duties were not arduous. He had as single companion a sergeant of the signal service, whose post was at the window overlooking the harbour. The sergeant read the semaphore message from the slender signal arm on the flagship's bridge, directions for the coal barge's movements, business-like orders to be transmitted to the quartermaster in charge of the naval stores ashore, and such humdrum of routine. These Woodhouse recorded and forwarded to their various destinations over the telephone. He had much time for thought, and much to think about. Yesterday's scene in the Library of Government House, his grilling by the two suspicious men, when a false answer on his part would have been the first step toward a firing squad. Yes, and what had followed between himself and the little American, the girl who had protected and aided him. Ah, the pain of that trial was hardly less poignant than had been the terror of the one preceding it. She had asked him to prove to her that he was not what she thought him. Before another day was passed, she would be out of his life and would depart, believing, yes, convinced, that the task he had set himself to do was a dishonorable one. She could not know that the soldiers of the Hidden Army have claim to heroism no less than they who join battle under the sun. But he was to see Jane Gerson once more. Woodhouse caught at this circumstance as something precious. To-night at Government House, Lady Crandall's dinner to the refugee Americans on the eve of their departure would offer a last opportunity. How could he turn it to the desire of his heart? One more incident of a crowded yesterday gave Woodhouse a crust for rumination, the unmasking Jamir Khan, the Indian, had elected for himself at that critical minute when it lay in his power to betray the stranger in the garrison. The captain reviewed the incident with great satisfaction, how of a sudden the wily Indian had changed from an enemy holding a man's life in his hand, to that friend in government house, of whose existence the cautious Almer had hinted but whose identity he had kept concealed. Almer had said that this friend could lay his hand on the combination to Room D in the signal tower when the proper moment arrived. Now that he knew Jamir Khan in his true stripe, Woodhouse made no doubt of his ability to fulfil Almer's prophecy. And the proper moment would be this night. To-night, on the eve of the great fleet sailing, what Woodhouse had come to Gibraltar to do, must be accomplished, or not at all. The man's nerves were taut, and he rose to step to the bayward window, there to look down on the embattled splendour of England's defence. Steel forts ranged all in rows, awaiting but the opportunity to loose their lightnings of obliteration against the ships of an enemy. Cardboard ships, shadows of dreams, in room D, just below his feet, a hand on the switches, a downward push, and then… Lady Crandall's dinner in Government House was in full tide of hilarity. Under the heavy-groined ceiling, the spread-table with its napery and silver, was the one spot of light in the long-shadowed dining-room. Round it sat the refugees, folk who had eaten black bread and sausage, and called that a meal who had dodged and twisted under the careless scourge of a war beyond their understanding and sympathies, ridden in springless carts, been bullied and hectored by military martinets, and beggared by panicky banks. Now, with the first glimpse of freedom already in sight, and under the warming influence of an American hostess's real American meal, they were swept off their feet by high spirits almost childlike. Henry J. Sherman, Kiwani's vagrant son, returning from painful pilgrimage, sat at the right of Lady Crandall, his pink face was glowing with humour. To Consul Reynolds, who swore he would have to pay for thus neglecting his consulate for so much as two hours, had fallen the honour of escorting Mrs. Sherman to table. Willie Kimball, polished as to shirt-bosom and sleek hair, had eyes and ears for none but the blithe kitty. Next to General Crandall sat Jane Gerson, radiant, in a dinner-gown of tricky gauze overlaid on silk. At her right was Captain Woodhouse, in proper uniform dinner-coat, faced with red and gold. Of the whole company, Woodhouse alone appeared constrained. The girl by his side had been cool in her greeting that evening. To his conversational sallies she had answered with indifference and now at table she divided her favours between General Crandall and the perky little consul across the table. It seemed to Woodhouse that she purposely added a lash of cruelty to her joy at the approaching departure on the morrow. "'Oh, you must all listen to this!' Kitty Sherman commanded the attention of the table, with a clapping of hands. "'Go ahead, Will. He had the funniest accent. Tell them about it!' Young Kimball looked conscious and began to stammer. "'You're getting us all excited, Willie,' Henry J. boomed from the opposite side of the table. "'What happened?' "'Why, ah, uh, really, quite ridiculous, you know. Hardly a matter to... Uh, talk about.' Willie fumbled the rose in the lapel of his jacket and searched for words. "'You see, this morning I was thinking very hard about what I would do when I got back to Kewanee.' oh, quite enthusiastic I am about the little town, now, and I, well, I mean to say, I got into my bath with my wrist-watch on.' Shouts of laughter added to the youth's confusion. Sherman leaned far across the table, and advised him in a hoarse whisper, "'Buy a dollar, Ingersoll, Willie, it floats!' "'Well, you might give him one of yours, father,' Kitty put in, in quick defense anybody who'd carry two watches around." two watches?' Lady Crandall was interested. Henry J. beamed expansively, pulled away his napkin, and proudly lifted from each waistcoat pocket a ponderous watch, linked by the thick chain passing through a buttonhole. "'This one,' he raised the right-hand timepiece, "'tells the time of the place I happen to be in. Changed it so often I guess the works'll never be the same again.' but this one is my pet. Here's Kiwanee time, not touched since we pulled out of the C, B and Q station on the 20th of last May.' He turned the face around for the others to read. "'Just three in the afternoon there now. Old Ed Porter's got the Daily Enterprise out on the street, and he's tilted back in his office chair, reading the Chicago Tribune that just got in on the 2-5 train. The boys at the bank are going out to the country club for golf. Young Pete Andrews, wearin' the knickerbockers his wife cut down from his old overcoat, sort of a horse blanket pattern, you might say. The town's just dozin' in the afternoon sun, and and not givin' a hang whether Henry J. Sherman and family gets back or not. You're an old dear, Lady Crandall bubbled. Some day Kiwani will erect a statue to you. The talk turned to art. And the man from Kewanee even had the stolid general, wiping the tears from his eyes, by his description and criticism of some of the masters his wife had trotted him around to admire. "'Willie, you'll be interested to know we got a painter in Kewanee now,' Henry J. cried. Remember, young Frank Coles, old Henry Coles' son? Well, he turned out to be an artist. Too bad, too. His folks was fine people but Frank was awfully headstrong about art. Painted a war-picture about as big as that wall there. Couldn't find a buyer right away, so he turned it over to Tim Burns, who keeps the saloon on Main Street. Been busy ever since. Sort of taken it out in trade, you might say. Table talk was running at a gay rate when Mrs. Sherman, who had sent frequent searching glances at Captain Woodhouse over the nodding buds of the flower-piece in the center of the board, suddenly broke out. "'Ah, Captain Woodhouse, now I remember where I've seen you before. I thought your face was familiar the minute I set my eyes on you this evening.' Shamir Khan, who stood behind the General's chair, arms folded and motionless, swiftly lifted one hand to his lips, but immediately mastered himself again. General Crandall looked up with a sharp crinkle of interest between his eyes. Captain Woodhouse, unperturbed, turned to the Kewanee dowager. You have seen me before, Mrs. Sherman? I am sure of it, the lady announced with decision. The other diners were listening now. Indeed, and where? Woodhouse was smiling polite attention. Why, at the Winter Garden in Berlin a month ago. Mrs. Sherman was hugely satisfied with her identification. She appealed to her husband for confirmation. "'Remember, father, that gentleman I mistook for Albert Downs, back home, that night we saw that, er, wicked performance?' "'Can't say I do,' Sherman answered tolerantly. Woodhouse, still smiling, addressed Mrs. Sherman. "'Frightfully sorry to disappoint you, Mrs. Sherman, but I was not in Berlin a month ago. I came here from Egypt, where I had been several years.' Woodhouse heard Jane at his elbow catch her breath. See, mother, there you go on your old hobby of recognizing folks," Sherman chided. Then to the others. Why, she's seen all Kewanee since she came here to Europe, even got a glimpse of the Methodist minister at Monte Carlo. I have never been in Berlin in my life, Mrs. Sherman, Woodhouse was adding, so, of course. Well, I suppose I am wrong, the lady admitted, but still I could swear— The governor, who had kept a cold eye on his subordinate during this colloquy, now caught Woodhouse's glance. The captain smiled frankly. "'Another such unexpected identification, General, and you'll have me in the cells as a spy, I dare say,' he remarked. "'Quite likely,' Crandall answered shortly, and took up his fork again. A maid stepped to Lady Crandall's chair at this juncture and whispered something. The latter spoke to Woodhouse. You're wanted on the telephone in the library, Captain. Very important, so the importunate person at the other end of the wire informs the maid." Woodhouse looked his confusion. "'Probably that silly ass at the Quay who lost a bag of mine when I landed,' he apologized, as he rose. "'If you'll pardon me.' Woodhouse passed up the stairs and into the library. He was surprised to find Jamir Khan standing by the telephone, his hand just in the act of setting the receiver back on the hook. The Indian stepped swiftly to the double doors and shut them behind the captain. "'A thousand pardons, captain,' he spoke hurriedly. "'The captain will stand near the telephone. They may come from the dining room at any minute.' "'What is all this?' Woodhouse began. "'I was called on the telephone.' a call I had inspired, Captain. It was necessary to see you, at once, and alone. Tactless, with the General suspecting me, you heard what that woman from America had said at the table. She has eyes in her head. I think he still trusts you, Captain, the Indian replied, and to-night we must act. The fleet sails at noon to-morrow. We? Woodhouse was on his guard at once. What do you mean, We? Jameer Khan smiled at the evasion. "'Yesterday, in this room, Captain, I burned a roll of plans—' "'Which I had good reason to wish saved,' Woodhouse caught him up. "'No matter, I burned them, at a moment when you were—in great peril, Captain.' "'Burned them, yes, perhaps to trap me further.' The Indian made a gesture of impatience. "'Oh, excellent discretion!' he cried in suppressed exasperation. But we waste time that is precious tonight. Before another word is spoken, let me have your card, your Wilhelmstrasse number. Woodhouse demanded. I carry no card. I am more discreet than some. The other answered insinuatingly. No card. Your number then. Jameer Khan brought his lips close to the white man's ear and whispered a number. Is that not correct? He asked. Woodhouse nodded curtly. And now that we are properly introduced, Jamir began, with a sardonic smile, may I venture a criticism? Your pardon, Captain, but our critics, they help us to perfection. Since when have men who come from the Wilhelmstrasse allowed themselves to make love in drawing-rooms? You mean? You and the young woman from America, when I found you together here yesterday. That is my affair, was Woodhouse's hot response. The affair on which we work, this night, that is my affair, be very sure. There was something of menace in the Indian's tone. Woodhouse bowed to his demand for an explanation. That young woman, as it happens, must be kept on our side. She saw me in France, when Captain Woodhouse was supposed to be in Egypt. Ah, so— Jamir inclined his head with a slight gesture craving pardon. For that reason you make a conquest. I did not understand. No matter, the fleet sails at noon. And our moment is here, tonight. Jamir whispered in exultation. Not until today did they admit you to the tower, Captain. How is it there? A simple matter, with the combination to the door of room D. With a single stride, the Indian was over before the door of the wall-safe. He pointed. The combination of the inner door. It is in a special compartment of that safe, protected by many wires. Before dawn, I cut the wires, and come to you with the combination. At whatever hour is best for you, Woodhouse put in eagerly. Let us say three-thirty, Jameer answered. You will be waiting for me at the Hotel Splendide with— our friends there. I shall come to you there, give you the combination, and you shall go through the lines to the signal tower." "'There must be no slip,' Woodhouse sternly warned. "'Not on my part, Captain. Count on that. For five years I have been waiting, waiting. Five years a servant. Yes, my General. No, my General. Very good, my General.' The man's voice vibrated with hate. To-morrow, near dawn, the English fleet shattered in a blaze in the harbour, the water red like blood with the flames. Then, by the breath of Allah, my service ends. Voices sounded in the hallway outside the double doors. Jamir Khan, a finger to his lips, nodded as he whispered, Three-thirty, at the Splendide. He faded like a white wraith through the door to General Crandall's room, as the double doors opened and the masculine faction of the dinner-party entered. Woodhouse rose from a stooping position at the telephone and faced them. To the General, whose sharp scrutiny stabbed like thin knives, he made plausible explanation. The beggar who lost his bag wanted a complete identification of it, had run it down at Algeciras. "'I understand,' Crandall grunted." When the cigars were lit, General Crandall excused himself for a minute, sat at his desk, and hurriedly scratched a note. Summoning Jamir, he ordered that the note be dispatched by orderly direct to Major Bishop, and given to no other hands. Woodhouse, who overheard his superior officer's command, was filled with vague apprehension. What Mrs. Sherman had said at table, this hurried note to Bishop, there was but one interpretation to give to the affair. Crandall's suspicions were all alive again. Yet, at three-thirty, at the Hotel Splendide. But when Crandall came back to join the circle of smokers, he was all geniality. The women came in by way of Jane Gerson's room. They had been taking a farewell peek at her dazzling stock of gowns, they said, before they were packed for the steamer. "'There was one or two I just had to see again,' Mrs. Sherman explained for the benefit of all before I said good-bye to them. One of them, by Madame Paquin, father. I'm going to copy when we get home. I'll be the first to introduce a Paquin into little Kiwani. "'Well, don't get into trouble with the minister, mother,' Henry J. warned. "'Some of the French gowns I've seen on this trip certainly would stir things up in Kiwani. Jamir served the coffee. Woodhouse tried to maneuver Jane into a tete-a-tete in an angle of the massive fireplace, but she outgeneraled him, and the observant Mrs. Sherman cornered him inexorably. "'Tell me, Captain Woodhouse,' she began, in her friendly tones, "'you said a while ago the general might mistake you for a spy. Don't you have a great deal of trouble with spies in your army in wartime?' everybody took us for spies in Germany and in France they thought poor Henry was carrying bombs to blow up the Eiffel Tower perhaps I can answer that question better than Captain Woodhouse the general put in rising and striding over to where mrs sherman kept the captain prisoner Captain Woodhouse you see would not be so likely to come in touch with those troublesome persons as one in command of a post like myself the most delicate irony barbed this speech Lost to all but the one for whom it was meant, oh, I know I'm going to hear something very exciting, Mrs. Sherman chortled, Kitty, you'd better hush up Willie Kimball for a while and come over here. You can improve your mind better, listening to the general Crandall soon was the centre of a group. He began with sober directness, Well, in the matter of spies in wartime, Mrs. Sherman one is struck by the fact of their resemblance to the plague you never can tell when they're going to get you or whence they came now here on the rock i have reason to believe we have one or more spies busy this minute jane gerson sitting where the light smote her face drew back into the shadow with a swift movement of protectiveness woodhouse who balanced a dainty satsuma coffee-cup on his knee kept his eyes on his superior's face with a mildly interested air In fact, Crandall continued evenly, I shouldn't be surprised if one, possibly two spies, should be arrested before the night is over. And the point about this that will interest you ladies is that one of these, the one whose order for arrest I have already given, is a woman, a very clever and pretty woman, I may add, to make the story more interesting. And the other, whose arrest may follow, is an accomplice of hers, I take it, General?" Woodhouse put the question with easy indifference. He was stirring his coffee abstractedly. "'Not only the accomplice, but the brains for both, Captain. A deucedly clever person, I'm frank, to admit.' "'Oh, people! Come and see the flagship, signalling to the rest of the fleet with its funny green and red lights.' It was Jane, who had suddenly risen, and stood by the curtains screening the balcony windows. They look like little flowers opening and shutting. The girl's diversion was sufficient to take interest momentarily from General Crandall's revelation. When all had clustered around the windows, conversation skipped to the fleet, its power, and the men who were ready to do battle behind its hundreds of guns. Mrs. Sherman was disappointed that the ships did not send up rockets. She'd read somewhere that ships send up rockets, and she didn't see why these should prove the exception. Interruption came from Jamir Khan, who bore a message for Consul Reynolds. The fussy little man ripped open the envelope with an air of importance. Ah, listen, folks, here we have the latest wireless from the Saxonia. We'll anchor about two, sail six. Have all passengers aboard by five-thirty. Excited gurgles from the refugees. That means, Reynolds wound up with a flourish, everybody at the docks by five o'clock. "'Be there myself, to see you off. Must go now. Lot of fuss and feathers getting everybody fixed.' He paused before Jane. "'You're going home at last, young lady,' he chirped. "'That depends entirely on Miss Gerson herself.' It was the general who spoke quietly but emphatically. Reynolds looked at him surprised. "'Why, I understood it was all arranged.' "'I repeat, it depends entirely on Miss Gerson.' Woodhouse caught the look of fear in Jane's eyes, and, as they fell for the instant on his, something else, appeal. He turned his head quickly. Lady Crandall saved the situation. Oh, that's just some more of George's eternal red tape. I'll snip it when the time comes. The consul's departure was the signal for the others they crowded around Lady Crandall and her husband, with voluble praise for the American dinner and thanks for the courtesy they had found on the rock. Woodhouse, after a last despairing effort to have a word of farewell with Jane, which she denied, turned to make his adieu to his host and hostess. "'No hurry, Captain,' Crandall caught him up. "'Expect Major Bishop at any minute. Small matter of official detail. You and he can go down to the rock together when he leaves.' Woodhouse's mind leaped to the meaning behind his superior's careless words. The hastily dispatched note, that was to summon Bishop to Government House. Crandall's speech about the two spies and the arrest of one of them, Louisa. he meant, and now this summary order that he wait the arrival of Bishop, would the second arrest be here in this room? The man who carried a number from the Wilhelmstrasse felt the walls of the library slowly closing in to crush him he could almost hear the whisper and mutter of the inexorable machine moving them closer, closer. Be alone with the man whose word could send bullets into his heart. "'A very pleasant dinner, Lady Crandalls,' Woodhouse began, eager to lighten the tenseness of the situation. "'Yes, it seemed so,' Crandall offered the younger man his cigarette case, and, lighting a smoke himself, straddled the hearth, his eyes keenly observant of Woodhouse's face. "'Rather odd, Americans, but jolly nice!' the captain laughed in reminiscence of the unspoiled Shermans. "'I thought so. I married one,' Crandall retorted. The ear of Woodhouse's mind could hear more plainly now the grinding of the cogs. The immutable power of fate lay there. "'Oh, er, uh, so you did. Very kind she has been to me. I got very little of this sort of thing at Vady Halfa. "'By the way, Woodhouse,' Crandall blew a contemplative puff toward the ceiling. Strange Mrs. Sherman should have thought she saw you at Berlin. Odd mistake to be sure, Woodhouse admitted, struggling to put ease into his voice. The lady seems to have a penchant, as her husband says, for finding familiar faces. "'Major Bishop,' Jamir Khan announced at the double doors. The major in person followed immediately. His greeting to Woodhouse was constrained. Woodhouse will wait for you to go down the rock with him, Crandall explained to the newcomer. Captain, excuse us for a minute, while we go into my room and run over a little matter of fleet supplies. Must check up with the fleet before it sails in the morning. Woodhouse bowed his acquiescence and saw the door to the general's room close behind the twain. He was not long alone. Noiselessly the double doors opened, and Jamir Khan entered. Woodhouse sprang to meet him, where he stood poised for flight just inside the doors. "'The woman's prattle of Berlin,' the Indian whispered. "'Yes, the General's suspicions are all aroused again.' "'Listen, I saw the note he sent to Bishop. The Major is to be set to watch you to-night, all night. A false step and you will be under arrest.' Jameer's thin face was twisted in wrath. "'One man's life will not stand in our way now.' No, Woodhouse affirmed. Success is very near. When Bishop goes with you down the rock— Yes, yes, what? The pistol screams, but the knife is dumb. Quick, Captain! With a swift movement of his hand, the Indian passed a thin-bladed dirk to the white man. The latter secreted the sheathed weapon in a pocket of his dinner jacket. He nodded, understanding. One man's life—nothing! Jamir breathed. "'It shall be done,' Woodhouse whispered. Jameer faded through the double doors like a spirit in a medium's cabinet. He had seen what the captain was slower to notice. The door from Jane Gerson's room was opening. The girl stepped swiftly into the room, and was by Woodhouse's side almost before he had seen her. "'I could not go away without—without—' "'Miss Gerson—Jane!' He was beside her instantly. His hand sought and found one of hers, and held it a willing prisoner. She was trembling, and her eyes were deep pools, riffled by conflicting currents. Her words came breathlessly. "'I was not myself. I tried to tell myself you were deceiving me, just, just as a part of this terrible mystery you are involved in. But when I heard General Crandall tell you to wait—' That, and what he said about the spies, I knew you were again in peril and 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 you have come to tell me good-bye as you believe I am honest, and that you care a little. Woodhouse's voice trembled with yearning when you think me in danger, then you forget doubts, and maybe your heart- oh, I want to believe, I want to. She whispered passionately, one here is against you. Tell me you are on the level, with me at least. I am, with you. I believe, she sighed, and her head fell near his shoulder, so near that with alacrity Captain Woodhouse settled it there. When this war is over, if I am alive, he was saying rapturously, may I come to America, for you, will you wait? Perhaps. The door to General Crandall's room opened. They sprang apart, just as Crandall and Bishop entered the library. The former was not blind to the situation. He darted a swift glance into the girl's face, and read much there. "'Ready, Captain?' Bishop chirped, affecting not to notice the momentary confusion of the man and the girl. Woodhouse gave Jane's hand a lingering clasp. Mutely his eyes adjured her to remember her plighted troth. In another minute he was gone. The general and his guest were alone. Jane Gerson was bidding him good-night when he interrupted, somewhat gruffly. "'Well, young woman, have you made up your mind? Do you sail in the morning, or not?' "'I made up my mind to that long ago,' she answered briskly. "'Of course I sail.' "'Then you're going to tell me what I want to know. Sensible girl, He rubbed his hands in satisfaction. "'What is it you want to know, General Crandall?' This almost carelessly from her. "'When did you meet Woodhouse before, and where?' "'How do you know I met him before?' She attempted to parry, but Crandall cut her short with a gesture of impatience. "'Please don't try that tack again. Answer those two questions, and you sail in the morning.' Jane Gerson's eyes grew hard and she lifted her chin in defiance. And if I refuse? Why should you? Crandall affected surprise, not altogether unfelt. No matter, I do. The challenge came crisp and sharp-cut as a new blade. Gibraltar's governor lost his temper instantly, his face purpled. And I know why, he rasped. He's got round you, made love to you, tricked you. I'd swear he was kissing you just the minute I came in here. The German cad. Good Lord, girl, can't you see how he's using you? I'm afraid I can't. Crandall advanced toward her, shaking a menacing finger at her. Let me tell you something, young woman. He's at the end of his rope. Done for. No use for you to stand up for him longer. He's under guard tonight, and a woman named Josepha, his accomplice, or maybe his dupe, is already under arrest, and to-morrow, when we examine her, she'll reveal his whole rotten schemes or have to stand against a wall with him. Come, now, throw him over. Don't risk your job, as you call it, for a German spy who's tricked you. Made a fool of you. Why—' "'General Crandall?' Her voice was white, and her eyes glowed with anger. "'I—I I beg your pardon, Miss Gerson,' he mumbled. I am exasperated, a fine girl like you, to throw away all your hopes and ambitions for a spy, and a bounder. Can't you see you're wrong?' "'General Crandall, some time, I hope it will be soon, you will apologize to me, and to Captain Woodhouse, for what you are saying to-night.' Her hands clenched into fists, whereon the knuckles showed white. The poise of her head, held a little forward, was all combative. "'Then you won't tell me what I want to know.' He could not but read the defiance in the girl's pose. "'I will tell you nothing but good-bye.' "'No, by gad, you won't. I can be stubborn, too. You shan't sail on the Saxonia in the morning. Understand?' "'Oh, shan't I? Who will dare stop me?' "'I will, Miss Gerson. I have plenty of right, and the power too. I'll ask you to tell that to my consul, on the dock at 5 tomorrow morning. Until then, General Crandall, au revoir. The door of the guest-room shut with a spiteful slam upon the master of Gibraltar, leaving him to nurse a grievance on the knees of wrath. End of chapter 16